Lord God, we come to you this night of all nights of the year, grateful that we can gather together as your people, reflecting at the beautiful mystery of you becoming as one of us, Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray, wherever we are individually in our journeys this night, that we would think your thoughts, that my words would be your words, that, Lord, you would take our wills and bend them to your own and take our hearts and set them on fire with love for you and for your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. You know, I've been thinking about this for months. You know, typically at Christmas time, you, you use that Luke passage that Bob just read. You know, it's the Linus passage, you know, lights please. And behold, an angel of the Lord, and all the wonderful things about it, the shepherds and the angels and Mary and Joseph and all that great stuff. But what tends to happen is people start to hear that, and they just, you know, tune it out. They start to look at their watches. I've been doing this a while, all right? And I just discovered, you know, I'm, I'm not doing that this year. Instead of taking us through the Luke 2 passage, which becomes nothing more than a a Christmas Eve ritual before my scotch on the rocks a little later. Um, tonight, I'd like to help you think about what Christmas means. I mean, when the Bible speaks about the birth of Jesus Christ, as Bob just read for us in Luke 2, this is God in the flesh, the Lord of Lords, the creator of the universe, comes to us and was placed in a manger. What does that actually mean? What does Christmas mean, in other words? Well, the letter to the first John tells us what Christmas means. I invite you to open up to the back of your bulletin where it's there. Or if you have a Bible with you, open up to the letter of first John. What we're going to learn about the true meaning of Christmas. That Christmas means God has revealed himself, number one. Number two... We can have a personal relationship with God. And number three, we can have fellowship with God and therefore great joy. All right? One, God has revealed himself. Two, we have a personal relationship with God. Three, we can have fellowship with God and with one another and therefore have lives of great joy. Let's look at this. First, God has revealed himself. This is John writing this. Verse 1, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to, you, to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, and was made manifest to us. I'm sure sometime in your life where someone has asked you or you've even thought this question yourself, how do I know God exists? Well, there's several ways you can address that question. If you be intellectually honest, you could start off with just looking at creation, as many philosophers and intellects have done throughout the centuries. I mean, for example, you know, look at creation, that the earth is on its exact axis that it is. And if it were a degree one way we'd burn, or we'd degree another way, we'd all freeze. Is that chance? Is the way that discussion goes. Or the salmon that swims up the very stream of her birth to lay her eggs before she dies. It's, it's an amazing 
fact of creation. Uh, that's chance. Uh, that's the create argument from creation. And you could take that argument. You could go there and start to talk about God exists based on that. Or you could do the philosophical argument called the cosmological argument. It's very labor-intensive, and I will give you the bullet-point argument of it. But it's really a good rational argument for the existence of God. Is, is what I do know, first of all, is that I exist. Therefore, my non-existence is possible. Therefore, whatever has the possibility to exist is currently caused to exist by another. There cannot be an infinite regression of current causes of existence. Therefore, a first uncaused cause must exist. All right? This uncaused cause must be infinite, all-powerful, unchanging, all-knowing, all-perfect, which we call God. Therefore, God exists. All right? And the God exists as explained in the Bible, is identical to that one. Therefore, the God of the Bible exists. You could go there, but that's like drinking dirt, right? All right? Kind of dry, overly philosophical, and is only useful in some circles. But notice what John does. He does what I would encourage each and every one of us to do. Because I'm a Christian because the evidence forces me to it. And John says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen, which we have looked on. <laughs> He's God. As a matter of fact, he would encourage us, go back to the original biographies, which we call the Gospels. The word gospel means good news. And if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, they're all saying from different perspectives the same things, that Jesus is God among us. Bob Yarborough, who is a New Testament scholar, the scholar of history, says when you look at the variety of verbs that John is using here, it corresponds to a, a witness attestation in an ancient jurisprudence. In other words, John is writing this letter. He's virtually not just writing any letter. He's swearing a deposition that you could use this in court. And what John is trying to say is that this is not just a nice story about Jesus Christ. It really happened. They really saw him. They heard him. They touched him. He really lived. He really died. He really rose from the dead. It is God come among us. He's not just a wonderful teacher. He's God incarnate, which means God in the flesh. He's revealed himself. And John's being very emphatic about this. We've seen him. We've heard him. We've talked to him. We've touched him. You know? And when you place your trust in that, you're secure. And what he's trying to get across is that we have seen him. He's revealed. So therefore, God exists. That's the first thing we notice. Second thing we notice is that you can have a relationship with God he continues this in verse 3, and he says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. We're being told here it's not enough just to believe in God, or even just to obey Him by being some kind of religious person. 
but rather Christmas means God has gone to infinite lengths to come near to you, to have a personal relationship with you so you can know him personally. Because if Christmas is just a legend, as so many in our culture believe, then I say to them, okay, you're on your own then. But if Christmas is true, and John is saying, look, this is true, then you can have a relationship with God by salvation through his grace. John wrote in his gospel in the first chapter, verse 14, that we have beheld his glory. Glories of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's who God is. He's full of grace and truth. Grace means God's unmerited favor to us. And truth meaning he's all true. He's all perfect. He's all knowing. He's omniscient. Everything packaged together there. And what the whole scriptures, all of scripture says is that since we can know God in this way, we're saved by grace through faith in him alone. For God is not content to simply be a concept in your life. God is not content just to have you believe in him intellectually and not affect your daily life at all. He's not content to even be something that warms your heart on Christmas Eve. He's not content to be a a, a powerful force that you have to bow down and worship him. No. He wants a relationship with you and wants to know you and wants you to relate to him in this way. And we needed Jesus to come in this way. We couldn't take him if he came in all his holiness and perfection and justice. I mean, think about it. You know, this, the eclipse that happened this summer or this spring, whenever that thing happened. All the, I went to go buy those eclipse glasses, and they were all sold out at Ace Hardware. So I had to make a shadow box like I did in 1970. I'm like, oh, gosh, i got to do this again, you know. So I went outside with my shadow box, and I looked inside, and there it was. It was the eclipse. It was perfect. I could see it. I just couldn't look at it with the glasses. I, really, I kept looking at it and go, I really want to see this with my glasses, but I don't have any. But you need it. Why? Because my optometrist son tells me, if you look at the sun, you're going to burn your retina. And that's exactly what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, because it's not the sun we're talking about. We sing about this. We're going to sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Wesley wrote, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. He didn't say, Veiled in flesh the Godhead hidden. No. He said, We could see God in Jesus Christ. Because if we were to see him in any other way, otherwise it would overwhelm us, literally. Remember when Moses wanted to see God's glory in the Old Testament? He goes, Lord, show me your glory. And he said, Moses, you can't see my glory. It'll kill you. But I'll tell you what you can do. Here, I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock, and I'm going to pass by you and show you my glory. And Moses just got to look at the afterburn of God's glory. But yet, when we see the story of Jesus and we read the Gospels for ourselves, and we read the Bible, it's like the filter. And you see the love, you see the humility, you see the warmth, you see his wisdom, you see his brilliance, you see his compassion. 
all the attributes you know of God from both the Old Testament and New Testament. And God says, I can't show you directly, but in Jesus Christ, you can come near me. We can come near intellectually because we can now understand. We can begin to grasp who he is. We can, he becomes touchable because he's taken on human form. We can relate to him. So many people who have never really read the Bible, when they begin to do so, they begin to really trust this all of a sudden when you read the scriptures. Because you start to read about him and you start to understand. You start to recognize that he is God with us. He's a real person. And the application here, the practical point about having this personal relationship with God is that God went to infinite lengths to get near to you so that you could get to know him personally. He lost his, all his glory and became one of us. And so now you must be willing to go to great lengths to get close to him. It's not enough just to say, I believe in him. You must, many of you know there are things that are going on in your life that displease the Lord. That's why you're not really close to him. Uh, many of you just aren't taking the time to learn how to pray. Christmas means God wants to be near to you. He wants to be close to you. And he's gone all the way in order to do so, and it's up to you to respond. John Wesley, when he was studying the book of Romans in Aldergate, London, went into the time of prayer, and he said, it, my heart felt strangely warmed as I met the Lord and understood that I'm saved by his grace through faith in Jesus alone. That's a man talking about his prayer life. Is that how you would talk about your prayer life? See, fellowship with God, personal relationship with God, must begin with the recognition, and it's the hardest thing we will ever do, is that I'm a rebel. And I have to humble myself and recognize that I can't be good enough on my own strength to merit my own salvation. The Bible calls it, I'm a sinner. The scripture says over and over, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no one righteous, no, not one. And it's the hardest thing for us to ever admit, but the reality is, and Paul writes it eloquently in the book of Ephesians, where we're saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And that, it is a gift, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast so that you may now go forth and show forth the blessing and walk in the good works that you've been called to walk in. You're saved by grace alone, but it doesn't remain alone. You live for the Lord. And it's a gift, Paul says. Imagine if you wake up tomorrow morning and you get these little kids in your house and your little son or your little daughter opens up the gift and they whip out their wallet and say, Dad, how much do I owe you? <laughs> Yet that's what we do with the Lord. We say, I, I, I believe in you, Lord, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to earn a little bit. We want to whip out the check and say, here, I got something for you. And he says, all your righteousness that you think is right before me is nothing more than filthy rags. It's from Isaiah. 
No, Christmas means that God is not contempt to be a concept in your life. Stop treating him that way. He's not someone that you know afar off. He went to infinite lengths to get close to you. Now, you do whatever it takes to get close to him. And last, we learn in this passage that we can have fellowship with God and that brings us great joy. Continuing verse 3, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you that you may have fellowship with us. Indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Because when you truly place your trust in Christ, and you have fellowship with, with people of all kinds of people, of all kinds of races and, and beliefs in Christ, and it's just a beautiful thing that I have more in common with Juwan Zumbus, the Anglican Bishop of Zbukuru, Nigeria, although culturally, man, it is so different. The man eats goat. You know? But we're brothers. And there's great joy in having that. To read an email from Bishop Juwan is like reading one of Paul's letters. It's just an amazing thing. And so... John's trying to communicate to the church, and this letter went to the church all over the ancient world. It wasn't written to particular people. It was written to the church, and it went all over the Roman Empire. And he's trying to communicate. When we have this kind of fellowship with one another, it gives us great joy. And he's employing the church. When you trust in this, as we proclaim it to you, and you place your trust in Jesus Christ, my joy is complete. Our joy is complete. And we make our joy complete I think it's best expressed uh, by illustration Tim Keller told his congregation at uh, Redeemer Presbyterian a few years back. Tim Keller, best-selling New York Times author. He's the pastor emeritus of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan. When he was in the 19, living in the 1980s, he was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia. And him and Kathy, they bought a home. And if you know the geography of Philly, it's very hilly over there. And so his house was built into a hill. And their basement was always a little wet and damp. It might be 95 degrees with 95% humidity outside. And, and it's, it's, it's just wet. And they were wondering, why is this always kind of wet down here? And the, his next-door neighbor who'd been there his whole life said, well, the realtors aren't going to tell you this. Now, I apologize to any realtors out there, but some pe realtors are like this, all right? Um, the realtors won't tell you this, but there's a subterranean river that's running under your house. And so no matter what it is, it's always going to be a little damp, and it's going to be a little cool. And I share that with you, because if you really believe everything that I've told you about Christmas and what it means, if you believed it with all your heart, if you really knew it, it would be like a subterranean river of joy that's always there keeping you cool even when the times of your life are hot and parched. Think of it like this. Until Christmas time, up here was the ideal. There was heaven, bliss, immortality, beauty, happiness. And down here was the real. 
suffering, death, limitation, brokenness. And between the ideal and the real is a concrete slab known as reality. And at Christmas time, God punched through that concrete slab and made the ideal real. And it keeps us going, even when everything else in life is pretty bad at times. And this world is pretty bad, isn't it? Just look at the headlines. It doesn't feel like it's getting better. When I was a little boy, my dad said, don't worry, son, the world's going to keep getting better. We're going to learn to take care of one another, and the world's going to become peace, and it's going to be right. I'm glad dad isn't here to see this. No, my friends. We try to live by the John Lennon and the Beatles song, We Can Work It Out. You know? You remember that song, We Can Work It Out. But we've been trying to work it out for thousands of years. And we've never worked it out. And it's never going to be worked out. But the reality is, the meaning of Christmas comes in. It's that subterranean river of joy that no matter what happens, we're cool. We're all right. Because God is with us. Offering us abundant and eternal life through this unmerited favor of his. And we can have a relationship with him, fellowship with one another, and be people of great joy. Every year as we gather here at Christmas Eve, with family and friends, and remember who we are, what we have, and what we've lost. I want to implore you, in the depth of your soul, that this is not a touching story. There is no nostalgia here. This is a reminder of the most amazing reality that God came and God spoke. And the God who came still comes. And the God who speaks still speaks. Peace on earth, on whom his favor rests. It's the true miracle of Christian that as we live in our troubling conflict world, with all its problems, all its hurts, all its pains, God is with us in Jesus Christ. And he loves you with an everlasting love. And so if you've never placed your trust ultimately in this Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you to pray with me. And the rest of you, just, just pray along with me as well. And let's all just sound an amen if you agree with me at the end of the prayer. And the point of it is, use the service to recommit your life to Christ. We have a confession. Pray it. <laughs> we invite you to the communion table. If you've been baptized, Come to the communion table, because this is not about your performance. It's about Jesus' performance for you on the cross. This is the gift of Christmas. Don't whip out the wallet and say, how much do I owe you, Lord? It's grace. And he wants you to know this abundant life, the real life, which is ideal. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so grateful to you that we don't have to feel good at Christmas in some kind of general way. And then 
it wears off on the 26th of December like a worn-out Christmas tree tossed out on the curb. We can honestly think about what Christmas really means. And it can be an anchor to our soul. And it can be, as Tim Keller told us, it's a subterranean river of joy. And Lord, if there are any among us who have never truly placed their trust in you, I pray for and along with them, Heavenly Father, I am a sinner, and I want forgiveness for all my sins. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me and rose again, and I want forgiveness for all of my sins. I now Lord, give you my life to do with as you wish and trust in you. And Lord, I ask that at this Christmas time for all of us, that we might think out all that this means, that we can recognize that you have come. We can have fellowship with you. And from that fellowship live lives of great joy that the love in Christmas points us to. For we ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, our Lord, and our God. Amen.